This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. This is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... In-game shopping. Sycamore Gap. And my latest Portland book raid. I'm trapped in a diabolical dilemma. The spirits are restless, as on Halloween night, and... Hold on, ma'am. Here in Sunset City, every night's Halloween. What's the hocus-pocus? Neighbors are vanishing, jewels are missing, and even the mayor's tangled in a web of witchcraft. Meow! Fear not, for the magical kitties of the Cat Eyes Detective Agency can handle any Halloween whodunit. But how, Detective? In Sunset City, secrets are as common as candy corn in October and run deeper than a witch's cauldron. Enter Magical Kitty Save the Day, the bewitching role-playing game for all ages. Its newest hometown source book, Kitty Noir, uncovers all the secrets lurking beneath the perfect facade of Sunset City. Kitty Noir? The spellbinding blend of classic film noir, spine-tingling mysteries, and eerie science fiction? That's right, and here's an extra Halloween treat. A full-size poster map of Sunset City, perfect for planning your spooktacular adventures. Get it now from Atlas Games! The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, the jingle of coins, the hearty hello, the ding of the bell over the door, (laughs) the jingle of more coins, the flipping of the equipment chapter, the flipping of the pages through the equipment chapter, welcome us once more into the gaming hut where our beloved Patreon backer Urchin Prince asks, Our last F-20 session was set the day before an expedition. As most of the group tried to wrap up dangling plot threads, one player happily delved into the equipment chapter, interrupting to get validation of buying lists, ask for contributions, and provide refunds. I give up. I hate shopping, but there will always be a player who loves the play of details and is not deterred by the GM's growls. The best answer I can come up with is to come up with ways to make those shopping trips more exciting for everyone, and reward the player for all this effort without penalizing the rest of us. As masters of both design and shopping, do you have any ideas? Robin, you actually solved this question for many games with a little something that I like to call the preparedness ability. So do you want to set that up and then we'll move into the F20ing of it? Yes, you can tell from the fact that I invented preparedness for Gumshoe that I feel your pain, Urchin Prince, and that I also hate shopping. And more to the point, usually the number of people who love shopping on screen in any group is zero or one. So uh, this is a real problem. It's a known issue, as we say. (laughs) And so what preparedness does is, for those of you who haven't seen it in Gumshoe, is that it's an ability that you roll to determine whether you have a necessary piece of equipment or not in the middle of the story, uh, which, of course, is something you see in fiction all the time, where you don't see the beginning of an adventure is rarely taken up with just a scene of people buying stuff that they will need later on, that even the versions of, uh, you know, equipment in fiction, it's a setup where Q shows Bond the cool thing. And then later on, it's, you know, paid off in an uh, unexpected way, or you have a montage 
of shopping for stuff in the middle where people get their equipment and there's fun rock and roll music and quick cuts and there's no no refunds. There's no scene where someone asks for a refund, that's for sure. But there are definitely players who love this stuff and they want to do it on stage. And that makes the obvious answers difficult because the obvious answer is, well, shop in the Slack channel or the Discord. Don't do it on stage. But they want to do it on stage. And that means, you know, going to some sort of ensemble setup where you're cutting between people and everybody else gets an exciting plot line. And then you cut to the person who's shopping for stuff. But that part is also kind of breaks the rule of being collaborative with other people because the idea when you're in an ensemble thing where it cuts between different people doing things individually is that the individual things you are doing should be at least moderately interesting to the rest of the group as spectators. And again, shopping ain't it. So it's it's a real conundrum because there's a bunch of people who that's why they're there. Like, I don't care about yeah, sure, I can use the equipment later and busting down doors and fighting the centipede people. But really, the most exciting thing is is buying it all at the beginning. And, you know, they're, they're not all off playing video games. Yeah, it's a it's a weird choice. I mean, in F20, I think the way to implement preparedness is not to add a new ability preparedness, but to say, just roll whatever the dominant stat is for your class. So if you're a fighter, the did I remember to bring arrows, lamp oil arrows or whatever, is not roll int, it's to roll, you know, strength, because it's your fighterness that would let you remember to bring those arrows. You know, thieves would roll decks, you know, mages would roll int for remembering whatever dumb thing they should have bought, and then, you know, you can deduct it out of your money if you're doing both bookkeeping and shopping, two of the most exciting things to see on stage. But basically... It should be fairly seamless for, as you say, the five players out of six who actually just want to get on with the expedition and don't necessarily care about the shop. But in terms of fairness to the player who wants to shop on stage, I think that there are kind of two ways to do it. And one way is to sort of share the fun out so that the player who likes to shop becomes lead shopper and sure enough there will be a shopping period and it's going to be just as dull as the finding magical components period is when the magic user does it or the you know tactical planning is when the uh, warlord does it or whatever but you just have to do it because it's part of that player's imagined shtick and so you rather than do you know, validating your buying list or asking for contributions. You just have that player say everyone gets, you know, 20 gold pieces or 200 silver pieces or whatever the money is. And you all get to go out and shop for your specialty. And then we'll meet back and we'll all have shopped and they'll have more fun. I grant you, but there is a degree of sort of brute enjoyment of saying one, two, three, four. That's my soft uh, high boots. One, two, three, four. That's my long, hot, soft gloves, etc. It's not unfun to do it. It's just unfun to do it at length and in front of other people normally. So, and it's unfun for them. Yeah, <laughs> that's that's right. the issue. Yeah, is there someone who wants to do something that everybody else finds uh, boring? Right, and and I think that the way to do it is to sort of, you know, try and concentrate it into as uh, you know as tight a period as you can. You know, no takebacks, no. No chat. If you want to do the shopping for the whole group, you have to do it on the Slack. If you're just doing shopping for you, 
we'll do a spotlight on you shopping and you getting the cool deal and you bargaining the old gnome, uh, you know, shopkeeper down when you find, you know, that one drinking horn that you suspect might be magic or whatever else. And we can do that scene because that's part of your character's imagined coolness is that they have, you know, an eye for a bargain or an eye for a, a hedge magic item or a cantrip item or something that makes shopping somehow story forward as opposed to just I'm engaging with this part of the rules that exists, you know, to, to pad out space. I, I guess the other way to make it interesting for the other players is to give them secondary NPCs who mm-hmm. play all the shopkeepers. Right. So that the person who's normally the fighter plays the uh, the armorer mm-hmm. and the uh, person who's uh, normally plays the uh, magician, you know, th- assuming they're not the one doing the shopping. Mm-hmm. And they can at least be on stage being the eccentric slash annoying NPC that you uh, have a low stakes interaction with. Mm-hmm. And that can, you know, give you at least something to do and some funny voices and stuff. But it's sort of fundamentally against narrative, which is why you don't see it in stories. It's really a solo mm-hmm. activity that you're insisting on doing in front of other people. So it's it's just inherently challenging. Is it, you know, it, it's, is shopping a uh, role-playing sin, extended shopping on, on a par with you know, being the thief who always wants to argue with the paladin. Is it one of those things where, you know, it should be considered a no-no or um, like, it's not a problem if everybody likes to shop. Yeah. Uh, It's a problem for you, the GM. And my advice there is to be working on something else. Yes. To suck it up. Statting out an encounter or something. And Mm -hmm. you can periodically look up. And I've, you know, I've, I've had at least, you know, one relatively recent rune quest session where everybody was shopping and that was fine. And they dug that. People do like, you know, buffing up their characters and and so forth, but and you know, making clever purchases. It is part of the core activity of especially a lot of fantasy games. The question is just if you, the GM, are bored, find something else to do. But if you know, most of the group is bored, even even if you're dividing up an ensemble, it's just a a really tough thing to overcome because implicit in the question is the fact that the player knows it's boring (laughs) and is being rushed along and it's not going with that because it's not boring to them. Right. And again, this is, you know, sort of the, you know, pulling out the zeroth rule is talk to that player and say, look, Randall, everyone else, you know, is bored by shopping. Can you keep it to a tight hour? Right. We're not going to say you can't shop. but minutes. can we maybe do any of the dungeoning and or dragoning, the effing and or 20ing today, you know, that everyone else would like to do? And Randall, unless Randall is a jerk and a horrible human being, and in which case, why is Randall in your game? I ask, would say, that's cool. I get it. I just really groove on the equipment lists and finding these cool little side cases. And at, at some point, you know, if if this is Randall's, you know, delight, and Randall is otherwise a, a good player and a stand-up guy, just suck it up. The things will happen in collaborative play that are really fun for one player and that the other players have to sort of spectate at. And sometimes it's kissing between the elf and the you know half-elf, and sometimes it's an extended shop, and you just have to, you know, think about Robin Hood or something, do something else with it. I will say, in my experience, there is a slight you know, codicil to the nobody likes to shop rule, which is at least with adolescent boy players, everybody loves to shop for a vehicle. 
And in my Call of Cthulhu group, the degree of discussion as to which roadster they should get or which, you know, oh, a Packard, get a Duesenberg. Oh, Duesenberg's so much more expensive, but it's got so much more power under the hood. That kind of shopping, buying your starship in Traveler, is a huge part of the, you know, enjoyment of the fantasy enjoyment of I have that car, I have that spaceship, I have that whatever. And so if the group has a vehicle, oftentimes that will become a more enjoyable shopping experience. I don't say for everyone, and I never played, you know, car or starship games with a majority female presenting party. So I don't know if this, if the law applies or if that's only a boy law, but I do know that group shopping for vehicles sort of changes the rules a little bit. And maybe that's something to keep in mind. It's not something to do every day, obviously, unless you are driving into a lot of shoggoths, but um, it is something to think about. Another thing I'll, I'll point out is just a key phrase in the question, which is the session was set the day before an expedition. And the other solution, which we, I guess we've touched on in our discussion of uh, preparedness, but deserves further emphasis, is start with the beginning of the expedition right. and give that player other things to interact with in the dungeon environment. You know, there's you find two suits of armor and there's uh, one key that will unlock uh, one or the other. And, you know, the key will melt when you get them out so you have to pick which one. Or you run into a weird peddler on the road who... Uh, can not only sell you some stuff, but has some information for the other people so that you look at what it is that the person enjoys about shopping. Is it the haggling? Is it the low stakes chatting? Is it just thinking about owning all of these imaginary things? Is, is it the and, lists? <laughs> yeah, is it the lists? And try and, you know, break it down a bit so that, you know, it, it happens as part of the expedition rather than as part of a, a kind of a low stakes early prologue and even in the beginning question urchin prince says as most of the group tried to wrap up dangling plot threads which implies that you could have done that specific scene and i'm not saying this excuse is randall but this specific scene as the montage that you talked about that you're cutting away to the you know day before the expedition what are you doing i'm saying goodbye to my beautiful half-elf boyfriend what are you doing i'm you know trying to steal that document from the baron that will give me my freedom what are you doing you know just their individual little actions in the town and then randall can be happily shopping and it becomes a sort of a um uh, an upbeat uh, after all of these sort of more dramatic downbeats, you can always cut back to Randall happily haggling over high soft boots or half high soft boots, because that's the question. Do you want knees to show in the dungeon? And everyone's having sort of a laugh at Randall, but they're also getting a little of their adrenaline out from the big goodbye to the half elf or stealing the document sequence that the other players have done. If you turn it into a thing where Randall is shopping when it's Randall time, then I think that solves a little of the original question, not the larger question, but the original question of Randall interrupting to get validation of their lists and their contributions and everything else. And it's just, Randall, you know that everyone's good for it. Just buy what you, Randall, think is wisest. Everyone will pay you back either out of their money now or out of the money we're going to get on this sweet expedition, whatever it is. Just keep a note and go to don't interrupt the, the 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 kissing part because that's also important and then that i think maybe provides a little bit of the why to start on the day before because you might have all of these dangling plot threads and it might actually move character to say what's the sort of thing the fighter does on the last day in town what does the barbarian do on the last day of town you know and those are going to be different fun things that 
color that personality and also might have little challenges to overcome. Right. And the other trick there is if there's other players who are A, bored by shopping and B, don't have a dangling plot thread, give them a scene, give them, you know, a new thing so that they're not sitting around bored as well. Give them a starter for the expedition. Maybe there's another, you know, uh, the the guys who are going to guard the caravan or whatever that they're leaving with. They come to you and say, look, the merchants are out merchanting, sneer, but I'll tell you, we've got a real um, uh, dire rat problem that if you could hook us up, we'd be appreciative. And we know that then we would know that you'd be real uh, soldiers and we'd uh, treat you professionally on the on the trip and it would be easier on everybody. And so you can sort of be working your way into favor with the uh, expedition, other expedition NPCs or doing, as you say, a minor quest that conveniently takes those characters off the board while Randall is out getting the very best pots that money can buy. And uh, that sounds like a summation if ever I heard one. So it sure let's, does. Uh, clear out of here and see what waits for us on the other side of this exciting commercial message. Pelgrane Press celebrates its favorite season. The spooky season. With a terrifying offer, insidiously designed to suck you into a world of role-playing horror. Go to the Pelgrane Press online store. With trembling hands, type in the promo code SCARY23. And get 20% off on Trail of Cthulhu products. 20% off on Yellow King role-playing game products. 20% off on Esoterrorist products. And you guessed it. 20% off on Fear Itself products. A deal this eldritch. This reality shattering. This disorienting. This pulse pounding. Can only intrude into our safe little existence while ghosts are ghosting and black cats are prowling. Specifically, until All Souls Day, November 1st. So that's promo code SCARY23. At the Pelgrane Press web store. For 20% off all its most chilling gumshoe horror games. Until November 1st. The clattering of the teletype, the news bulletin bursting over the tannoy, tell us that once more we're in a hut that has been ripped from the headlines, where beloved Patreon backer Evan Hughes asks, The recent destruction of a tree at Sycamore Gap on Hadrian's Wall has provoked unexpectedly high levels of public outrage. Given that walls can be more than just physical barriers, is it possible that the tree was planted in the Gap 300 years ago for a reason? And does the Sycamore's removal unleash forces best left alone? Robin, does it? Right. Okay, so this this happens, as we know, on the north side of Hadrian's Wall. Uh, and it's uh, between two towns with great names, Halt Whistle and Hexham. And the fact that it's named Hexham implies that surely there are some dark forces at work. But it turns out that if you ask the, the locals, there are actually no mystical legends or anything associated with this tree. So uh, we will have to be the ones to make that up. Yeah. So let's look at the tree crime and then go back into history. So on September 28th of, of this year, of 2023, the tree was felled by someone who later forensic chainsawologists looked at what had happened and they concluded that it was definitely cut down by someone with a who had been trained as a tree surgeon or had some experience with that because it was cut in the very efficient three cut method and there was 
white paint along it to mark it. And it, and it was cut down with a large chainsaw, not a consumer model. So uh, something uh, of a sort of a, a lumberjacky uh, nature. There were two people who were detained and then released without charge. So not really quite arrested. One of them is a juvenile who can't be identified. And the other is uh, an older gentleman who I'm not going to identify because it's not clear. Yeah, because he hasn't been convicted. He hasn't been convicted. He, on that day, had been evicted from the farmhouse where he was living, having thought that it was his right to inherit the rental contract for a farmhouse where he's been living from Jesuits who own it. The Jesuits have been involved in an extensive campaign to get him out of there, saying that, you know, he can't produce the paperwork saying that he inherits the rental contract. Um, There's another issue where people were using it as a camp and they were loudly enjoying themselves uh, during lockdown. So that was sort of an issue. So anyway, the day that he was legally evicted, but is still living on the property in a camper van is the same day the tree came down and he's a retired lumberjack. (laughs) And so even this person says, I can see why everybody is looking at me and assumes that I did it, but I didn't, even though looking at pictures of this from the computer, I say, that's really well cut down. That's a professional job, whoever it was who did that. And he says that, you know, his life has been made a living hell because as we heard earlier, people in the community are, are very angry about this and they are blaming him. And so he's taken to going around wearing a Rod Stewart wig in order to disguise himself, although I think probably in a small <laughs> rural area. I'm not sure how effective a disguise yeah, I, that is. I feel like in the Halt Whistle area, you're like, oh, no, that must be a different ex-lumberjack with a grudge because this one's got Rod Stewart hair. Right. And I think part of what makes people angry is it seems like such a, a gratuitous act. If you're going to look at other similar cases that have happened, a thing that would make it explicable is that it was interrupted poaching that quite often big trees like this are in danger of being cut down and they're carted off and they're, they're wood sold in the black market. Mm-hmm. So in the world of non-magical reality, that could be a thing that makes sense because it, it's been described as vandalism, but the professionalism with which it was cut suggests some other motive. Yeah. However, this tree, of course, any old tree has a long history. A beloved tree has an extra long history. And Ken, why don't you tell us a bit about the history of the tree? Well, the history of the tree, first of all, you see people say that it's 300 years old, which would mean that it was planted in the 1720s, which is, I suppose, one possibility. I will say that the Woodland Trust, who I guess in Britain are the people who age trees or whatever, uh, say that it was probably planted by the antiquarian and lawyer John Clayton, who did the first sort of preservation of Hadrian's Wall, and he preserved it by the eminently sensible tactic of buying as much of Hadrian's Wall as he could. So he bought the estate called Housesteads that the Gap is part of, bought it in 1838, died in 1890. They say at some point he must have planted that tree. Other people say there are signs of a grove of sycamore trees there, and maybe he did some trimming around an older tree that was planted when it was turned into sort of a gentleman farm, and this would have been circa 1698, when the border reavers, the Armstrong family, were thrown out of it, finally, by a guy who just wanted to plant things named Gibson, Thomas Gibson, and he, you know, let the farm out to tenants and eventually you know, the theory is one of them planted this tree 
along with other sycamores because it's not a proper sycamore like in the bible that's a fig tree this is what is more clearly known as a sycamore maple and the maple wood is really good for making farm uh sort of furniture and utensils especially you make dishes and forks and whatnot out of sycamore wood because it's a very sweet but still hard wood so it, it smells nice and it you know holds its its shape and you can wash it without ruining it the way you might other kind of wood so sycamores wound up getting planted around a lot of english farms and Welsh farms and Scots farms in that, you know, period, the 1700s. So that's why people are saying it might be 300 years old. But the Woodland Trust, for whatever reason, says that's a classic John Clayton tree planting. We'd know it anywhere. So the age of the tree itself is somewhat in dispute. I will say that in 2016, it was named England's best tree in a contest. So there you go, I guess. Good for it. It came in sixth, uh, I think fifth in a field of 16 for Europe's best tree the next year. Europeans, of course, you know, probably salty about Brexit, didn't want to give an, an English tree the, its rightful spot. So some jerk of a pine probably won it. I, I don't right. even want to go into that. And, and it's a movie star. It's yeah. in the Kevin Costner Robin Hood movie and uh, is an Instagram star as well, or yeah. was before. Because it it's very down. pretty, or was. Because it's very pretty. It's a great, easily composed Beautiful shot with the wall and the tree, and, and now it's all over. Yeah, it sat in a gap, in not a gap in Hadrian's Wall, but a gap in the cliff. The cliff is called the Windshill Cliff, and it's uh, made out of dolerite, and there's a natural dip where the glacier runoff had eroded away the, the windshill, and uh, that's where the tree is planted. Dolerite, I will point out, is also called, when it's dug up in Wales, bluestone, and that's what they make Stonehenge out of. So... Just a note, just something to keep in mind. That gap has been, you know, noticed before by border reavers, not just the Nixons and the Armstrongs who owned the house during the 17th century, but by somebody because in the Bronze Age, they built a wall across that gap. And then Hadrian famously built his own much bigger, better wall across not just that gap, but all of England in 122 AD and added a little Roman fort very nearby the gap, Vercovitium, just two miles east of the tree. And it was garrisoned by a cohort of Germanic Tungri and a Frisian cavalry unit. As far as anyone knows, both of whom were there even after the rest of the Roman legions left, where it was just, okay, have fun. And at some point they would have gotten sick of it and melded into the countryside. But, uh, that that unit seems to have been there at the very least down into the uh, early 5th century. So we have the possible, you know, source of King Arthur's horses are supposedly Frisian horses. So maybe they were, you know, part of King Arthur's horse breeder group up there. And that sets up, you know, the great uh, tradition of horse raiding that uh, that gap lends itself to later on. Right. So this tree is not uh, reputed to be magical, uh, particularly, but the type of tree can you found some associations with it, at least that we can begin to sort of unpack what its mystical qualities might be. For example, you found out that it's a favored tree for hangings. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because it has strong branches and also because it grows thickly in that border country between England and Scotland, <laughs> it's handy. <laughs> and perhaps because it was a hangman's tree, perhaps because it grows uh, relatively thickly and the leaves fall and they're, they take a long time to rot and it annoys horticulturalists. 
So it got planted in graveyards a lot where it doesn't matter that there's gross wet leaves everywhere. That sign of adds to the flavor of it. Um, and although the sycamore maple is probably a recent introduction to Britain, maybe as late as Tudor times, the 15, early 1500s, late 1400s, it has at least grown enough in Wales that now they use it to keep fairies away. And I guess maybe it keeps fairies away because it's not a tree that the fairies recognize. And so they're messed up by seeing a sycamore maple where they expect to see a proper oak or something. But that's also why the sycamore maple is not, no maple tree, is in the druid tree alphabet. And, and Robin, I checked and the sycamore maple does grow in Canada and the maple leaf on your beloved flag is a generic maple leaf, not specifically the sugar maple leaf of Quebec. So you have skin in this game that you might not have known. Right. So we're beginning to head towards some sort of this tree is uh, an enemy of the old powers, or at least confusingly unfamiliar to them. The fairies don't like it. The druids don't know what it is. If we want to look at other weird stuff in Hexham, the main paranormal thing there are the uh, Hexham heads. Uh, which are uh, little stone six centimeter heads that were dug up in 1971 by young boys and kicked off a whole poltergeist uh, manifestation. I think that's a separate thing for an elliptony hut uh, sometime yeah. in the future, though. But I would like to mention that Hexham is one of the leading candidates for the original of H.P. Lovecraft's Exum Priory, which, when you read the story, takes place in the north of England. And uh, because they mentioned auroras in the sky over Hexham Priory and that Hexham Priory is near a Roman camp. And we know that this gap is near a Roman camp and there's a whole Roman city just over the hill there at Corbridge. So if Hexham is Hexham Priory, then bringing in a tree that local Shubnagurath, local Kybele, local near Othotep doesn't recognize becomes a little more important. Maybe John Clayton or even the Scott you know, poor, innocent Thomas Gibson, the spiritual ancestor of those poor Jesuits is, is up to something. Although the Jesuits, of course, while we're looking for people with a long history of being involved in occult machinations, maybe the Jesuits need a second look, Robin. And I think another thing to look at is what people think should go in its place now that the tree is yeah. unfelled. So there are a number of different proposals. One front runner is for a bench carved from the wood of the felled tree, which was recovered by the National Trust and is being held in a secure, undisclosed location, which does seem to suggest there's some sort of magical or numinous thing that uh, they're trying to keep it away from whoever was trying to get that wood to, mm -hmm. to use it for fall purposes. Someone else owns a full-grown sycamore in relatively loose soil, which will make it easy to uproot and just stick there. He has volunteered the, his tree as a replacement. There is the idea of taking the seeds of the old tree, which are still, you know, a part of what was uh, brought down and uh, planting a new tree from that in order to have tree continuity. Someone with a more uh, sciency perspective has uh, proposed a display with sort of a cross section of it so that you can see the tree rings and some sort of naturey description. But I think the thing that pinged to me as possibly the solution to this mystery is there's a proposal to replace it with a metal replica, mm. a, a metallic tree. A robo tree. Right. And so that doesn't sound like the sort of thing that your druids or fairies would get up to. Um, even Shubnagurath uh, is probably not into that. So it may be that there's some local group who are uh, fighting the forces of supernatural and 
are uh, looking, I guess the fairies and the druids cut the tree down and they want to replace it with something that's even more inimical to them. Right. And, Cold uh, iron would be at the core right, of this metal exactly. replica. So I think definitely this is a operation between the, the fairies and whatever government agency uh, in the UK opposes them. And since it's a UK government agency in 2023, I think the fairies are going to win. Yeah. I, I, you know, put your, put your leaves down on the fairies. I'd say put your money down on the fairies, but they'll just turn it into leaves anyway. So, yeah. Right. So uh, soon I think there'll be a sign near the site saying, uh, we're very sorry. Nothing can be done about this fairy infestation. Please uh, just tolerate it as much as you can and uh, don't eat their food. And then it'll be, you know, sycamore whistles are mandatory, just like in Cornwall. And then they'll be forbidden for no reason. It'll just be like, uh, no, we changed our mind. You can't have a sycamore whistle in the area. And it'll be because the fairies are all like, you know, mad because their sensitivities are outraged by anti-fairy whistling. Right. And it's, it's going to be a big thing. It's going to show up on Twitter, I'm sure. But, you know, like I say, get your leaves down now. Team fairy, yeah. team Nirlathotep looks like. He's won again, curses, but there we are. That's what happens yeah. when you vandalize wonderful 300-year-old trees, even 300-year-old trees that the Druids didn't know about and that might not actually have been 300 years old. Right. So, sorry, people of Halt Whistle. Yep. And now on to our next segment through this exciting commercial. The Best of Asphageln is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic Choose Your Adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English, that's Swedish, not English, you can delight in every original issue of Phoenix and the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Astfageln on DriveThru. Keep this podcast's magic shop well-stocked. By joining such judicious Patreon backers as David Soa, Brian Thomas, Alexander Araballo, Derek Heimforth, and Robert Wolf. Ken is back from a journey. He's back from a journey to the wilds of Oregon, or more terrifyingly, the bookstores of Portland and area, and therefore is back with another installment of Ken's Bookshelf. Uh, so as is our want, uh, we're going to uh, vicariously enjoy all of Ken's purchases. Uh, we will only hear him touching half of the books because he brought half with him and is waiting for the shipment of the other. But let's get right to it because we got a lot of them as usual with a book that I have read and highly recommend, Ancient Wine, The Search for the Origins of Viniculture by Patrick E. McGovern. Yep. This was a Daedalus Books find and it looked exactly, I mean, 
Robin has already recommended it. What better recommendation could you have? But Sight Unseen, I recommend it. I recommended it enough to buy it. And it's remarkably good. It looks like it's going to go into the sort of, you know, historical sources such as they are, as well as, you know, archaeobotany, which is one of the funnest things you can, prefixes you can put on a botany, I feel. Yep, molecular archaeology. Yeah, so much good stuff. And, you know, the whole notion of, did it be made by the Neolithic people? Did you have to wait until you could make, you know, I assume you had to wait until you could make pottery, but pottery, of course, is much older than we thought all of a sudden with Gobekli Tepe and all this other good stuff. So yeah, it'll be very, very fun to delve into this. And I'm sure that if I can't get an ancient Dionysus or proto Dionysus cult out of it, I'm not even trying. Staying on the ancient uh, tip, we come to the Scythian Empire, Central Eurasia and the birth of the classical age from Persia to China by Christopher I. Beckwith. Yeah, this is a rare new book that I bought. But I bought it because I'd read Empires of the Silk Road by Christopher Beckwith and been simultaneously fascinated by the sort of level of scholarship he brings to these Central Asian cultures and tribes and nations and dumbfounded by the level of intellectual audacity he brings to some of his claims, which seemed way, way out. And if it had not been a real historian using real historical methods making these claims, this would go on a whole different shelf of the bookshelf, but it straight up, he's saying, you know, old Chinese is an Indo-European language. And I thought that seems unlikely. The Scythian empire begins with an unlikely such as there was a Scythian empire, which I think is itself controversial, but he goes deeper. He says, for example, Buddha, Zoroaster, Lao Tzu, and Anaxagoras were all Scythians. And it is at this point that I say, tell me more. So Christopher Beckwith, you have my interest. See if you can continue to have my respect. But the Scythians are great anyway. They're understudied. And uh, Christopher Beckwith will at the very least be giving them their due. And I suspect maybe a tiny bit more. But that's uh, that's how history advances. Uh, next, we come to the Duane Roller translation of Eratosthenes' Geography. Yeah, this is, you know, probably the most expensive book I bought on this trip. Hi, Sheila. How are you? I also got you a book. But this is the relatively short Geography of Eratosthenes, the first world geography written in the third century BC, so ideal for Hellenistica. And it is extensively annotated by Dwayne Roller, who is, I think, probably the biggest expert on ancient geography that there is. Um, so it's a new translation. It's fully annotated. So when Eratosthenes does a one-line toss-off about some land no one's ever heard of uh, west of the Caspian, Dwayne Roller is there with all the citations from Strabo and all the other uh, period sources, Herodotus, to sort of put it in a full context. So this is, in a way, a sneaky geography of what is known of the Hellenistic world, done in this case by a faultless classicist, Dwayne Roller. So I'm uh, very excited to have my very own copy of Eratosthenes with those scholarly notes, because, of course, Eratosthenes, you can just read on Perseus or any other, you know, public domain Greek classics website. But to get Dwayne Roller's notes, you apparently have to shell out a pretty penny at Daedalus Books. And now we come to a title that implies a historical corrective, The Murder of Cleopatra by Pat Brown. Yeah, this is a book that was spawned, I think, by a Discovery Channel show. Pat Brown is a criminal profiler, and I'm sure that uh, she does a great job 
profiling criminals in the real world. But Discovery Channel said, we'd like you to make something up about Cleopatra. And she said, I can't. This is a cold case. Right, exactly. I can't make something up about Cleopatra. But she stopped at a Barnes and Noble, read one book about Cleopatra and said, that story doesn't add up. I'm on team cover up. So her argument is that Octavian had Cleopatra murdered to prevent her from rousing the people of Egypt against Rome. And his cover story was she committed suicide and he's really mad because he can't show her off in a triumph. Darn the luck. And so you would say, of course, he had a motive to murder Cleopatra. He wanted to own Egypt, but he cleverly didn't have a motive because he said, oh, no, I wanted to exhibit her in a triumph and now I can't shoot. But it is interesting that someone who's saying we have to look at the historical, you know, nature of the person to do the profiling says, you know, Cleopatra was a strong, independent woman. Therefore, she wouldn't have committed suicide just to screw over Octavian. But of course, the notion of suicide in the classical era was absolutely you committed it to screw over someone you hated. That was a reason one to commit suicide. So I feel like Pat Brown has done a, you know, a, a fine Projecting job. Some modern attitudes, perhaps. Yes, but a little bit of modernism, a little bit of presentism in a perfectly cromulent, but I don't think I buy the, the bit. Right. But if you're going to use forensic profiling to uh, frame somebody, uh, somebody who's been dead for many, many centuries uh, would be my candidate for that. Staying in the classical world, we come to Whispering City, Rome and Its Histories by R.J.B. Bosworth. Yeah, this is a notion of how various political groups that have run Rome have cast Rome's history. So it's not a history of Rome. It's a history of histories of Rome. And I enjoy that kind of historiography. I enjoy it when it's about Wyatt Earp. I enjoy it when it's about uh, all manner of things. I'm reading one right now where it's about the Bronte sisters, which is super interesting. And what about Rome? I mean, Rome is inherently even cooler than Wyatt Earp. You can't imagine how great this book could be. So I'm hoping it's that great. And next we come to Muhammad and Charlemagne Revisited, The History of a Controversy by Emmett Scott. Yeah, the title is based on a book by Henri Perrin, one of the foundational books of medieval history called Muhammad and Charlemagne. And Perrin's thesis, uh, which when I learned it, I used to just make the joke parenthesis over and over and over again, so consider it made, is that the fall of the Roman Empire did not fully occur until the Arab conquest of the East. And that until that time, although the Goths and whatnot were running things, they limped along by basically being able to trade with the Roman East. And so they became sort of an economic third world around Constantinople, but had not collapsed completely. And that was the fault of the Arab invasions. And a lot of Historians cock their nose at Henri Perrin. His thesis is generally not accepted. They say either, no, it was the Ostrogoths' fault, stop taking away Germany's one claim to fame, or B, nowadays they say Rome never fell, you're just all rotten jerks for saying that barbarians make a thing fall. And I think there's a revisionist, revisionist argument that said, no, seriously, look at the economic data, it super fell, stop being annoying. So... The why it fell has been sort of shuffled off to one side. And this guy, Emmett Scott, comes by and says, what if the Persians, instead of being beaten by the Arabs, converted to Islam? And that's why the Persian conquest of the East is the important one. And that's why the Arabs were basically able to take over after the Persian Empire, you know, finished the conquest is because they were these sort of ideological, you know, commissars, I guess, in the Persian armies. And then they took over after the Persians invaded and that the uh, restoration of the empire by Heraclius, that's the myth, and that that didn't happen. So he's got a 
a big historical revisionism, question mark, and perhaps wrong theory, but he's trying to bolster good old Henri Perrin, who I think, you know, looked at some numbers and did it pretty well. And Scott is going to look at those same numbers only bolstered by the last century of economic research. So it's going to be a strong argument, but I think a, a, a weak explanation. Sometimes a title sells me right away. And then the subtitle goes a little overboard with the hype. And that happens with Shakespeare's library, unlocking the greatest mystery in literature by Stuart Kells. And I assume this is basically Will's bookshelf. We sort of know some of the books that he had access to. Mm-hmm. What more does uh, Kells have to say about that? Well, I think Kells has to say, where did it go? Which is the question. His will. Oh, that's did- nowhere near the, that's not even the top 20. Like, where did his books go? Who cares? No, right. I mean, well, some people care. Yeah, but it's not the greatest mystery in literature. It's not even the greatest mystery of Shakespeare, much less yeah. the greatest mystery of literature. No, I grant you the subtitle is all hype. But the title, Robin, Shakespeare's Library, as you say, Will's Bookshelf. What? Just call it Where Did Shakespeare's Library Go? I'm in. Yeah. Well, I'm sorry. I'm sorry uh, that Stuart Kells has overegged the pudding, but I'm hoping. I'm sure it's his editor. I blame his editor. I'm hoping that th- this book will be lots and lots of tracking down of 16th century versions of Plutarch and Holinshed and will be full of book detectiving, which is after art detectiving, maybe the best kind of detectiving. Looking for the ones with the mean doodles of Christopher Marlowe. In the, in the right, the, the lots of uh, slam poetry written about Ben Johnson being fat. Next, we come to Pirates of Barbary, Corsairs, Conquests, and Captivity in the 17th Century Mediterranean by Adrian Tenniswood. And this is, uh, as far as I can tell, a straightforward narrative history of the Barbary pirates in the 17th century. This was their sort of high-water mark. After the Ottoman fleet had gone away, they were left as independent navies of the Mediterranean. And in a famous raid, you reached the coasts of Iceland and the coasts of Ireland in their uh, seeking for slaves. So they were out there getting it done in the uh, Mediterranean and North Atlantic. And this was sort of their high water mark, as it were. And this is straight up pirate history. And I have been a fan of straight up pirate history since I was but a small boy and thought there was only one kind of pirate. And now that the, you know, world of exotic global piracy has been opened up to me, I, 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 I can't, I can't wait. I'm excited about it. This is going to be lots of good stuff. And, uh, from a, a really good role playing forward period, because you have functional guns, but they don't have rapid rates of fire. So it's the most exciting period of the 17th century. From stealing stuff on the water to stealing stuff on the land. We go to Perilous Trails, Dangerous Men, Early California Stagecoach Robbers, and Their Desperate Careers, 1856 to 1900 by William B. Seacrest. And first of all, I think the thing that really got me over and above stagecoach robbers, want that, is that it goes down to 1900. You really don't think of stagecoach robbing and, you know, the... uh in the 20th century, having a lot to do with each other, but apparently they do. And uh, this is just one for the Western gunmen and bad men shelves. It's a, a, a field that I don't have any specific stuff on. Most of my stuff is the outlaws of the Intermountain West or uh, the you know lower Midwest. So California robbers are going to be intrinsically uh, filling a hole in my uh, collection already. Speaking of undercovered and exciting topics... We come to Empire and Espionage, Spies in the Zulu War by Stephen Way. I am always interested in espionage, as you know, Robin, and espionage carried out by the British before the formal establishment of their espionage directorates, the MI6 and MI5. 
So the Zulu war is in the 1870s. The question is, who's running it? Is it just the South African colonial office? Is it someone else? Is it the military? And my other question is, that's got to be the hardest war in the world to be a spy in. I yeah. mean, can you Hello, ho, what, what, ho? Ah, fellow Zulus, are we? What, what, what? Ah, uh, where do we plan to camp today? Just curious. Just like to note it down here in my Zulu notebook. What? I want to know who thinks they are a Zulu spy, even of the British. That has to be the most deranged idea possible. I'm very excited to read about it. Uh, next, we come to The Greatest Spy, the true story of the secret agent that inspired James Bond by John Hart. My question is, which of the many secret agents who inspired James Bond is this about? This is about Sidney Riley, the ace of spies, who probably did not inspire James Bond very much at all. But I have... <laughs> yeah, I think, that's an edge case. I think I have two or maybe three biographies of Sidney Riley already. I think three. So once I've got three biographies of a guy, if I find a fourth, Robin... I, I can't help it. John Hart, by the way, is a real investigative journalist who has done work in the um, intelligence area. So he's not just some goober, but still, I will be interested if it says anything that Richard Spence doesn't say. And if it says it and it argues with Richard Spence, I will cock an eye. That's what right. I do. Uh, speaking of characters in Ian Fleming who were inspired by multiple people, we come to The Man Who Was M, The Life of Maxwell Knight by Anthony Masters. And Maxwell Knight, of course, famously did sign things M because that was his first name, was Maxwell. And I think we've done a whole segment on Maxwell Knight because of his connections to proto-fascist movements in England, his connections to Aleister Crowley, his enormous collection of cool uh, zoo animals. He's a character. He's a fella. And so Maxwell Knight is an ideal Trail of Cthulhu figure and uh, certainly worthy of a biography, even a relatively slim one by this, like this one. Now we come to Wings of the CIA by uh, Frederick Laird. And this is a aviation history of the CIA. So apparently famously, uh, I think Admiral Poindexter at, at one point, or uh, maybe the guy before him asked, how many planes does the CIA own? And it took a week and a half for the guy to say, here's, what we guess the number to be, we have a 90% confidence in this right. number. And do you mean own or rent? Or own, rent, rent to own, lease, lease to rent, lease, and then sublease. Know a guy. Know a guy. We got a lot of planes. And Frederick Laird, nothing loath, said, well, then I'm going to track down those planes. And so it includes all the sort of CIA-run airlines, your Air Americas and whatnot. It includes the various parts of the actual CIA air forces, like the ones that they used at Bay of Pigs or in Congo. And that it includes all the other sort of weird transport planes with blacked out tail numbers that people have been taking obsessive notes about. So it's, it's really, it's not a clean, pretty book. It's the work of a weird obsessive, which makes it, of course, right down my well, alley. Who else, who else would write this? Plus it's an aviation history of the CIA, which is just, a bent notion to begin with. Uh, obviously, I had to get it. Next, my question is, is this what it sounds like? Hollywood and Vintage Postcards by Rod Kennedy and Elizabeth Ellis. Well, if it sounds like Rod Kennedy has a collection of vintage postcards depicting Hollywood and Elizabeth Ellis wrote the text, that's exactly what it is. The vintage postcards go, I think, from about 1920 to 1950. So they overlap the projected Hollywood game if I run it. And even if they if I don't wind up running it, they're still pretty and uh, worth keeping around. Next, we come to Lost Transmissions, The Secret History of Science Fiction and Fantasy by Desirina Boscovich. Yeah, this is an all-arts study of science fiction and fantasy, basically since Jules Verne, and it is a sort of overview of some of the things that people don't know, like there's a little, who was Robert W. Chambers section, which is 
unexceptionable. But then there's also essays on weirder, not so much lost, but side trails not gone down. So Desiree Boscovich reached out to a Jules Verne scholar, and that person turned in an essay about the novel that was rejected by Jules Verne's publisher and sent Jules Verne perhaps down a different road than he would have gone if it had been accepted. And those sorts of trails not taken, side roads, weird things that you don't think about, like the architecture of science fiction has a little subchapter. So obviously I had to pick this book up. It seems like a, a really great dive into, there's going to be something you learn, something you're fascinated by, regardless of where in the book you look. And even if you already know the topic, there's lots of other topics because it's a, a collection, both of Desirina Boscovich's sort of catch you up to date essays. And then these more, I want to say exploratory essays by other figures that Boscovich rounded up for this very cool looking collection and beautifully illustrated, I should say too. Well, that was a great pile of books and I'm glad everybody is very happy to, oh wait, that's only one pile of books. Guess we better listen to a commercial and be back with the other half. In Delta Green, cosmic terror meets modern conspiracy. The secret group Delta Green dedicates itself to protecting humanity from unnatural horrors. They misappropriate the resources of the U.S. government to wage a war they must at all costs keep hidden. Delta Green, the conspiracy, is the source book for the grungy, cynical era that started it all. The 1990s. Generation X becomes Generation X. In Delta Green, The Conspiracy. An updated, rearranged version of the original 1997 Delta Green sourcebook with new art and graphic design. Featuring top-secret Eldritch new appendices by Shane Blackbag Ivy. And a forward by Ray Plausibly Deniable Winninger. Put on your flannels, grab your duffel bag of hardware, and assemble your fake passports. Enter the Temple of the Dog, exit the Temple of Cthulhu. Never mind all the brain leakage you suffer when seeking the Nirvana of Nyarlathe Tap. Find the fungi on the Mina airfield. And why Jeremy really spoke in class today. Tell your retailer it's at that unmarked warehouse they always order from. That's Delta Green, the conspiracy. From Arc Dream Publishing. And we are back in Ken's bookshelf. And we're going to start with a title that is uh, very much on point for this podcast, The Bizarro Encyclopedia of Film, Volume 1, by John Skip and Heather Drain. Yeah, this is mostly a book of essays about film. There is also a list of films with very minor filmographic details in it that John Skip and or Heather Drain consider bizarro. Bizarro is generally either titles that would be in the cult section of your video store or titles that should be if people were watching them correctly. So Return to Oz is considered a bizarro film just because it will mess you up, but it's probably in the children's section. So they're sort of reclaiming movies they think are really cool and weird for bizarro, as well as doing your sort of very standard, you know, hey, Heather Biller's The Love Witch, pretty bizarro, right? Boom, in there. So, And these days by section, we mean category on Netflix. And by category on Netflix, we don't mean anything because Netflix has a horrible categorization system. But yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a, you know, definitely there's a degree of backward lookingness to it that is, you know, standard, not just in 
film writing, but also in, I think, increasingly countercultural writing where people are looking back at the, you know, glorious times of the seventies and eighties and saying, can't we have that today? And the answer is probably not, but we can at least make a cool book about it. Speaking of the glorious past, The Lady from the Black Lagoon, Hollywood Monsters and the Lost Legacy of Millicent Patrick by Mallory O'Mara. Millicent Patrick was a makeup and production artist in the early days of Hollywood, worked for Disney for a while. And uh, the reason that the title is The Lady from the Black Lagoon is she made the head of the Gill Man, and I assume did some large degree of consulting on the arms and legs and feet and the rest of the gill man. And so this is she did the part with the gills. That's the crucial she did part. The part with the gills. And to some extent, the part with the man. And this is her story. It's one of those unsung heroines of, of Hollywood type stories. I think the gill man is mostly a hook, but what a hook, Robin, what a hook. Uh, next we come to nightmare fuel, the science of horror films by Nina Nessa. The science is maybe a slight, overstatement because although it talks about the physiology of our response to horror, you know, why does our hair stand up? That kind of thing. It also talks about psychology and we know that psychology is, well, science is a strong word for it, but uh, what people do know and think about how horror works is what Nina Nesseth is interested in. And I, I like those sorts of works that talk about, you know, art in terms of the uh, physical response almost as much as I like works that talk about art in terms of the emotional or intellectual response. And if only because the physical response is maybe a little underrated because it's not cool to do art the way that we used to do in the 1800s, where it was supposed to get a physical reaction out of you and make your heart race and the rest of it. Right. Where of course, almost all art has, has a physiological impact. And that's the point. Because we are not separate from our bodies. Exactly. But that's a giant digression. So let's undigress with something that unfortunately is about psychology and horror in an all too real true crime way. And that's Slender Man, online obsession, mental illness, and the violent crime of two Midwestern girls by Kathleen Hale. Yeah, this is a true crime book, really. Slender Man is the hook why it's going to be on my shelves, not Sheila's. But I'm sure that Sheila will want to look at it because it is a true crime book and it's a, a, I think we've talked about this particular grotesque crime when we did Slender Man on the show. So not a lot more to say about that, except this is the book that if we'd had it, that segment would have been more informed and probably a little less jaunty because it's not a jaunty story. Yeah, I don't think we were super jaunty, but at any rate, yeah. uh, let's move on to something funner, uh, which is uh, Legends of the Fire Spirits, Jinn and Genies from Arabia to Zanzibar by Robert Lebling. And this is Robert Lebling going all anthropology uh, literature review. And he did some collecting, and I think he went to other collections of legends of the djinn and figured out what sort of the folkloric facts on the ground are, as well as what the, you know, ancient Islamic sources say and where that, you know, fun shatter zone lies. Because, of course, just like Christianity has produced all manner of wonderful folk beliefs, Islam, same deal. And the genies are one of the most exciting, especially to Westerners who don't read Arabic, such as me. Going back a little bit before Arabic, we get to the first female pharaoh. So Becca Nefru, Goddess of the Seven Stars by Andrew Collins. Long-time listeners to this segment, not to this segment, but to this Ken's bookshelf, may note that if this was a history book, it would be all the way up before the Scythian Empire. <laughs> because the progression is from uh, Sirius to sort of cultural studies, and then we get to increasingly kooky. Yeah, we do history, we do lies, which is spies usually. Then we do culture, uh, which is art, which is best lies. And then we do 
elliptony. And here we are, Robin. If the genies didn't tip you off, welcome to Sobek Neferu, who was a real pharaoh. So Andrew Collins gets a point for that. But Andrew Collins, I have been following him since he did first-person stories about being chased all over England by the evil legions of the Black Alchemist. And I thought, that's a guy who needs to stop pretending things happen to him and start pretending they happen to ancient people. And he's mostly done that. So this is Sobek Nefru, real. Her connection to Hathor, probably real. Hathor's connection to Seven Star Magic, possibly real. Sobek Nefru being at all influential on modern occultism, almost certainly made up. Pyramids based on her, completely made up. But we get around to the end. Bram Stoker, of course, writes his returned mummy story is Jewel of the Seven Stars. And Andrew Collins has a non-ridiculous theory that he was writing about Sobek Nefru, not about a better known female pharaoh in the person of Queen Terra. And so... That is what I think got it off the shelf. And the fact that Andrew Collins, who I've really enjoyed ever since he was being chased by the Black Alchemist, is going out there and finding a new thing to make up lies about, not just recycling other people's lies. And that level of commitment is rare in Elliptony, and it's rare, especially in ancient Egypt Elliptony. And so just for that reason, I'm here on Team Andrew Collins and Team Sobek Nefru for a bit. Speaking of a topic that can bear a whole lot of speculation, we come to The Witch's Ointment, The Secret History of Psychedelic Magic by Thomas Hatzis. Yeah, Thomas Hatzis is not the first person, and probably will not be the last person, to notice that when you dig into the ointment that witches were supposed to spread on themselves, the recipes that we have, they're very high in psychoactive drugs. You know, aconite, all these other things, they're strong dissociants. You often have not fun time LSD and weed experiences on them. You have messed up hardcore, you know, Russian crocodile type experiences on them. And that the argument is that maybe there is a certain part of society in medieval times that prefers a drug trip to actually being part of society. And I know that in our modern era where no one is medicated at all, self or otherwise, and we all fit in perfectly, that's a crazy notion. But it's come up time and again. And a lot of people, I think for under-argued reasons, dismiss the whole psychoactive drug explanation for witchcraft. And I don't think it's the whole explanation by any means, but I do think it's underplayed. And so, therefore... I'm going to track with any other, you know, grass panoply of mystical experiences and practices. Right, exactly. And since um, uh, it is so very underplayed, it is worth getting, I feel like every now and again, a book that overplays it, which is, I think, what Thomas Hatzis <laughs> is going to do. But it's still, you know, it's going to, you know, on beyond ergot, I think should be our, our, our motto here. Let's think about it as something other than accidental poisoning. It's one of my start favorite Moby records. Looking at it as a, as a folk way. And I think that this book is, is a, is a step on that path. Plus it'll have fun, you know, notions of hallucinatory uh, demons, which is, you know, grist for my many, many mills, I would say. Now this title immediately made me think, Oh, it gets this crazy woo. And then I got to the name of the author and it's like, is this the same person? The Gnostic Faustus, the secret teachings behind the classic text by Ramona Freydon. Is that the cartoonist? Well, Robin, let me answer you this by quoting from the back cover. Ramona Freydon has been investigating the Faust legend since 1978 in order to decipher the mysteries of its spiritual framework. 
She has also practiced astrology and energy healing and studied shamanism and hypnotherapy and is a visual artist with extensive illustration credits in the comics industry. She is the artist for Aquaman, Metamorpho, and Brenda Starr. In 2006, she was inducted into the Comic Book Hall of Fame. She lives in upstate New York. So take that, Grant Morrison and Alan Moore. You're not the only weirdos in comics. Ramona Freydon is also an occultist. That yeah. is a trip. Yep, it is a trip. And it, I did not buy the Gnostic Faustus for that. I bought it to find the secret teachings behind the classic text. Because it said Gnostic Faustus. Because it said Gnostic your hand. Faustus right on the cover. And I love the argument that a book about seeking knowledge so much that you will deal with the devil is something that Gnostics theoretically say about themselves, as opposed to an anti-Gnostic screed used to make fun of Catholics, which is what it clearly and obviously is. Well, so, if the world is evil and there's knowledge in the world, you have to deal with evil to get exactly. knowledge. Exactly. Think about it. So I'm I'm excited to, to find out about it, and now that I know it's from the beloved artist of Wonder Woman and Brenda Starr, I'm, if, if anything, more excited to know. Next, we come to Mrs. Wakeman versus the Antichrist and other strange but true tales from American history. By Robert Damon Schneck. So that sounds like an anthology of uh, topics. Yeah, and Robert Damon Schneck is a skeptical historian of the Fordian and the weird. He is not boring skeptical. He doesn't just close his arms off and say, there was no vampire. Deal with it. He dives in. He's a fun maintainer. He's a fun maintainer as long as he can. And then in just the politest possible way, he says, well... Here's what probably happened. Oh, I don't know anybody else like that. Right. So, yeah, he's a he's a, a friend of the show, even if he doesn't know it. He wrote a terrific book called The American Vampire that is another, or The President's Vampire, rather, that is another one of these collections of true elliptony investigations. This is, you know, a, a lady who started a new religion to fight the Antichrist, uh, Mrs. Wakeman. And she won, apparently, because look, look around the world, Robin, the Antichrist ain't here. Let's go down to New Orleans for The Magic of Marie Laveau, embracing the spiritual legacy of the voodoo queen of New Orleans by Denise Alvarado. Voodoo books, by and large, sort of walk the line between two extremes. There's the sort of Llewellyn voodoo book, which is how you can do voodoo in your own suburban house. And there's stultifying anthropological studies of Haiti. And in between that is, I think, the sweet spot. And this book looks like it's in that spot. Because although Denise Alvarado is published by Weiser, which is a faultless occult book publisher, she is, you know, very interested in you doing voodoo in the in your own suburban house, but she wants you to do authentic, proper voodoo the way that Marie Laveau did. And so she is diving into the records of Marie Laveau's life, the things that she was ascribed to by the popular press, and then whatever tradition has been passed down by her work descendants, both self-identified and if there were any actual. So I feel like Denise Alvarado is, is in that middle spot looking at someone who, you know, even in the absolute least magical sense, is one of the most interesting people in New Orleans history, certainly before the Civil War, and uh, it is worthy of many books about it. I, again, much like Riley Ace of Spies, I have a number of books about Queen Marie, and this is another great one, I'm sure, or another perfectly good one, at least. We're going to go uh, north from New Orleans up to Memphis for A Secret History of Memphis Hoodoo, Root Workers, Conjurers, and Spirituals by Tony Kale. And this one is, if anything, even more historically minded than uh, the Marie Laveau book. It is looking at the culture of hoodoo, which is primarily African-American conjure magic. It's got 
family and ritual connections to voodoo, but it's not the same thing. It's usually a folk magic that is practiced within the traditions of black Protestantism and has its own, you know, sort of wonderful power, especially as the book indicates amongst blues musicians and uh, uh, black music of all kinds from the Memphis and, you know, Delta area. This is looking back to say what was being done in Memphis at the time. How did it show up in music? Do we know any names? Oh, sure we do, because they were all advertising in black newspapers. So great. There's a lot of documentary evidence that no one has gone through and looked for. Tony Kale has done, as far as I can tell, what the couple of flip throughs, a pretty good job of at least sifting through that primary source evidence and is building out a pretty good overview of what Memphis hoodoo looked like in maybe the first half of the 20th century, and that's a pretty great half of the century, frankly. Next on the list, we come to a title that just seems like a draw of the nerd trope cards, <laughs> Ancient Aliens and JFK by Mike Barra. Yep, we're back on the, you know, never make anything up, back on the tiny, tiny margins on the back cover. Ancient Aliens, they're, they're with us, they're on the moon, they're on Mars. NASA is trying to exploit them. Kennedy wants to reveal them. These things can't work. I don't think the ancient aliens killed JFK. I think would-be exploiters of ancient aliens killed JFK is the secret answer here. But it is very much, you know, take two things everyone loves, write a book about the Venn diagram in the middle, get a hideous cover and a super thin back, and you're off to the races from my good friends at Adventures Unlimited Press, even. So there's... Uh, nothing necessarily to admire in the book, but it is definitely, as you say, a draw the nerd trope cards and uh, one that uh, will provide ample juice for, I imagine, anyone wanting to run a somewhat tasteless, but certainly exciting Fall of Delta Green campaign. And so as we're nearing the end of the pile, things get crazier and crazier. And that uh, gets us to Racing Towards Armageddon, The Three Great Religions and the Plot to End the World by Michael Bajent. Elliptonists of a certain standing may recognize Michael Bajent as one of the three authors of Holy Blood, Holy Grail. He is one of the ones that is kept at it, as you can tell. And this book makes the argument that within uh, both Christianity, Judaism, and Islam, there are apocalyptic sects that believe that if they can bring about the end times, they're doing God's will, and that those sects have great political and military power in America, Israel, and I assume Iran will be his third case, but maybe he'll be throwing us a, a curveball with Saudi Arabia or somewhere. The first part of that sentence was true. Yeah. And then there's the other part. And then there's the other part where they're all engaged in a plot to end the world, which I feel is maybe a reach. But uh, it's Michael Bajant, so he knows how to present a whack conspiracy theory. It's got, sadly, continued salience, even though I suspect the specific Armageddon that he was warning against has passed us by blithely. But it's, you know, always there. And the old, uh, terrible things are happening. It must be because things are organized. Exactly. Too. The Middle East was so, was working so well before these guys came and screwed it up. But the, uh, you know, it's a, it's a classic political conspiracy thriller done by a uh, antinomian elliptonist of a great vintage. So it's worth picking up for me. I can't really say everyone else needs to rush out and get it, but it's certainly going to, you know, inspire some footnotes somewhere. And finally, UFOs for the 21st Century Mind, A Fresh Guide to an Ancient Mystery by Richard Dolan. So is this like uh, everything is totally changed about UFOs after 9-11 sort of book? Richard Dolan wrote one of my favorite books, actually two of my favorite books because it's in two volumes, about uh, UFOs, UFOs and the National Security State. And that book 
was a very sober history of the various parts of the United States federal government, especially the military industrial intelligence triplex exploiting and covering up UFOs. And it was just as straightforward and believery, but serious. It's like, if you read a book that said, you know, we're going to write a diplomatic history of America, but it's all about UFOs. That's the tone that that book is about. The UFOs for the 21st century mind is a little less uh, bureaucratic history. It is attempting to sort of recapitulate the whole field now, and then is saying, what do we know now that we have all of this evidence of American federal involvement in UFOs? How can we address it going forward? So he's recapitulating the, the first century or so of ufology and then moving out into not necessarily post 9-11, but post, you know, the cell phone era, post universal surveillance, post the, the second edition of the book, which sadly I don't have because the first edition was on sale, goes even into the sort of the new UAP uh, flaps. Uh, this one just covers all the ones that happened in the 20 teens. The last time we were super excited that this time for sure it's real. Um, right. and, and we'll know people are really adopting the term UAP when publishers put it on book titles. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it still says UFO. It still says UFOs. It says UFOs in the second edition as well. Richard Dolan is a, is a great researcher and a, uh, has a lovely, a beautiful tone. I think you maybe have to be a bit of a connoisseur to appreciate it as much as I do. But the sight of him having a new book that carried things into this century, I was very happy to buy even the first edition. And I'm, you know, going to be super glad to delve into it and see what's going on. Well, I, once again, I feel that I've bought a whole bunch of books without paying for them or having to lug them around. So Ken, uh, once again, you've done a yeoman service to uh, me and to our listeners. And uh, let's all just marinate in the in the bookish consumerism of it all as we uh, wait another week for another one of these here podcasts. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrain Press. Asphagelm. Arc Dream. Dark Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Simple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Support our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Protect this podcast from lawless tree felling by joining such upstanding backers as... Ben Vincent. Chad Ward. Chris Farrell. Dwayne Krugelski. And Gray St. Quentin. Wear this show or drink it from a mug with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Present the gray alien point of view with our latest design. Nope, still not us. On X, he's at Kenneth Height. And on Mastodon, he's Robin D. Laws at Dice.Kent. See you next time when once again, uh, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>